featuring interviews and commentary from Animal Rights Zone, the online social network for humans who seek justice for other animals. You can find us on the web at www.arzone.net. I'm your host, Carolyn Bailey. In today's episode, Tim Geyer and I are pleased to welcome back to AR Zone our special guest, Professor of Psychology and Sociology, Dr. Melanie Joy. Melanie is the founder and president of the Carnism Awareness and Action Network, which is on the web at carnism.com. AR listeners will also be familiar with Melanie as the author of the very popular book, Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs and Wear Cows. Melanie also writes regularly for OneGreenPlanet.org, where she's recently published a new article, Speaking Truth to Power. Melanie, welcome back to AR Zone. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to speak with the two of you. You're very welcome, Melanie. Melanie, we're looking forward to speaking with you today about your new essay. But before we do, would you please briefly explain for our listeners what carnism is and why you refer to it as an ideology? Sure thing. Um, Well, carnism is the invisible belief system or ideology that conditions people to eat animals. It's essentially the opposite of veganism. We tend to assume that it's only vegans and vegetarians who bring their beliefs to the dinner table, but most people don't learn to uh, love dogs, but who eat pigs, for instance, because they don't have a belief system when it comes to eating animals. In short, when eating animals is not a necessity for survival, then it is a choice. And choices always stem from beliefs. You say that carnism is invisible and that it's important to call carnism by its name. Can you speak about why it is so? Yeah, well, dominant systems, and carnism is a dominant ideology, that maintain themselves in, in large part by remaining unexamined or unseen. It's like there are vegans and vegetarians, and then there's everybody else, as though you know the so-called majority doesn't have a belief system when it comes to eating animals. Um, I should actually back up and, and talk about the type of um, ideology that carnism is. It's a dominant ideology, as I have said, which means it's woven through the very structure of society to shape norms laws, beliefs, behaviors, etc. Um, and it's also, um, it also becomes internalized, um, shaping the very way we think and feel about eating animals. When we're born into a dominant ideology, and dominant ideologies tend to be invisible, unseen, unrecognized. Um, it's just sort of the, the normal thing to do to eat animals, for instance. Um, when we're born into a dominant ideology, we look at the world through the lens of that ideology. And that's what I mean by us having internalized the ideology. Now, carnism is also an oppressive ideology in that it's constructed around the oppression of one group, in this case farmed animals, um, being exploited or, or used for the benefit to serve the ends of another privileged group, in this case it's humans or human animals consumers, to be more specific. And dominant oppressive ideologies, such as carnism, run counter the tenets of these ideologies, the teachings of these ideologies, run counter to core human values, the values such as compassion and justice, authenticity. And, you know, therefore, systems such as carnism need to use a set of defense mechanisms on a social level and on an individual level so that humane people can participate in inhumane practices without fully realizing what they're doing. Carnism is constructed to really block our awareness and and our empathy, um, to stop us from thinking and feeling when it comes to those 
animals that we have learned to think of as edible. And um, when I talk about these defenses of carnism, these social and psychological defenses, I actually I list them in my book, and I talk about them a little bit in this um, in this article that you referred to earlier, speaking truth to power. The main defense of carnism is is denial. Okay, if we deny there's a problem in the first place, then we don't have to do anything about it. And denial is expressed largely through invisibility. Carnistic invisibility exists on on well two levels more than two levels, but two main levels. Um, in one way, carnism maintains its uh, uh, practical invisibility. In other words, the victims of the system are kept out of sight and therefore conveniently out of public consciousness. And I know this comment that I make about the invisibility of carnism or the practical invisibility of carnism has been somewhat controversial among you know, some people, um, some vegan activists. But I would um, suggest that even though we do see the... Um, um, the consequences of carnism. We do see dead animals surrounding us when we walk out the door, when we go to the supermarket, when we go to a, a restaurant. The invisibility of the victims is largely maintained. The vast majority of the victims, the non-human victims of carnism, are clearly kept as far out of sight as, as possible. Um, and we don't see in the United States alone, for instance, 10 billion land animals are slaughtered every year, or at least close to 10 billion land animals are slaughtered every year for their flesh and other, other body parts. Um, and the vast majority of Americans don't see any part of the process by which those beings are turned into food. So even though invisibility, practical invisibility is not 100%, and it is increasingly decreasing, if that's confusing, increasingly decreasing, um, it's becoming less and less powerful. Um, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, it still in large part exists. And, and, and on a practical level as well, carnism maintains the invisibility of its other victims. In other words, we don't recognize carnism as a system of victimization that victimizes clearly farmed animals, the most obvious and direct victims of the system. But it also victimizes the environment. Carnism victimizes uh, animal consumers whose hearts and minds have been manipulated by a system that's outside of their awareness and therefore outside of their control and that's um, encouraging them to act against their core values and their own interests by polluting their bodies with these products of violence and, and toxic products. Um, and carnism victimizes the meat, pack meat packers and slaughterhouse workers um, who are often highly exploited group of workers who, who work in a highly dangerous, death-saturated environment and not surprisingly have been found to have high rates of post-traumatic stress and addictions. And carnism also victimizes vegans, and that's something that I speak to in my new article, Speaking Truth to Power. So, so that's the invisibility of carnism on a practical level. And I'm not saying that, this, that, that the, the victims of carnism are 100% invisible. That would be virtually impossible to, for the system to ensure. But they're largely invisible, and the system works to maintain this invisibility. Carnism is also symbolically invisible, and in some ways this is almost more important. Um, what this means is that the system or the ideology itself is unseen. Um, when we don't recognize the ideology that, that it exists, we can't challenge it. Um, one thing that I think is so important for vegan advocates to do and activists to do is really to shine a spotlight on carnism. We really need to make carnism carnists problem to face, not vegans problem to solve. We can learn from feminists 
to, you know, for instance, really shine a spotlight on sexism rather than saying everybody has to be a feminist in order for us to challenge this system of exploitation, sexism and patriarchy. They said, you know, uh, for example, you know, today, many people support many feminist initiatives, but most people don't call themselves feminists. And yet nobody wants to be a sexist. So while I'm not saying that we don't proudly wear the label of vegan and encourage people to become more and more aware of what veganism is and, um, and, and use this term, I think that it's a, a mistake not to shine a spotlight on the problem itself and keep the focus only on the solution, which is veganism. So I was reading something the other day um, about, and I may pr mispronounce it, but uh, Sapper Wharf, and if I if I understand what I've read about it, this speaks to the idea that when something isn't named in a culture, that it can't be talked about, and if it can't be talked about, it's not clear exactly how it can be thought about or how much thought there can be about it. Is, is that what you're getting at when you talk about naming carnism? Yeah, well, very much so. And, and, and language um, both reflects and reinforces our culture, both. So, you know, by, by not naming something, by not naming carnism, you know, we reinforce the myth that eating animals is a given rather than a choice, that, um, you know, the behaviors and beliefs of the majority are uh, based on universal truths rather than a set of widely held opinions. So, yes, you're absolutely right. And it's very important for us to, to name carnism because if we don't name it, as you pointed out, we, we can't even think about it. We can't talk about it and we can't question it. We can't challenge it. By naming carnism, we can really significantly transform the way that we as a society, as a people, think and talk about the issue of eating animals. And it's also important for us to talk about name and talk about carnism because it uh, enables us as I, as I mentioned, carnism is um, organized around defense mechanisms that essentially exist to distort people's perceptions of um, flesh, eggs, dairy, and the animals they eat so they can feel comfortable enough to consume them. And, and these defenses lose much of their power when they are exposed. The system loses much of its power when it's exposed. Once we are able to, you know, think about the, our goal as vegans, I would suggest that our goal as vegans is not simply the abolition of animal agriculture. It's the abolition of carnism, the system that enables animal agriculture in the first place. If we recognize this as being fundamental to our goal, then we can start to think about ways to dismantle this system. And the way that you dismantle a system that's upheld and maintained by defenses is by uh, systematically destabilizing or weakening its defenses. And so carnistic defenses lose a lot of their power when they're exposed, and they can't be exposed if we don't name them, if we don't point them out. So one of the criticisms that I know you face is that, is that people say that, that what we need to be is anti-speciesist, and we need to talk about speciesism, which um, – you, you, I don't know that you disagree with that, but obviously you think that talking about carnism is more important. Why is that? Well, you know, I would say that that criticism um, comes from a very, you know, it's, that's, a, that's a very uncommon. It is a criticism I've received, um, but I want to say that by and large, um, it is not a criticism that I hear very often. Um, but I do want to speak to it. Um, I mean, would, I would you say it's, I'm sorry to interrupt, but would you say it's like, the, the only term I can think of is inside baseball. In other words, it's like people within the movement talk about it, but it's not something you hear talking to the general public. Is that I've never is that heard fair? it from the general 
no, I've never heard it from the general public, and I've heard it from, you know, probably 1% of the people in the movement that I interact with. So, you know, it's, okay. it's a very uncommon, um, I don't want to say uncommon, but it's, it's not a, a, a criticism that I commonly come across, but it is one that I've heard, and I do want to speak to it. And, you know, the first thing I would say is that the perfect is the enemy of the good. And, you know, as somebody who likes to think about strategy and efficacy, you know, I'm constantly asking the question, you know, what, what is going to work here? And I think it's very important for us to appreciate that we cannot approach ideology devoid of psychology. In other words, we, you know, many, uh, some people in the movement are, you know, um, very committed to being ideologically pure. And I think that that is um, I think that that's an admirable goal in many ways. The problem is that we have all inherited a mess. We've inherited an incredibly messy world, and human beings are, you know, messy people um, with a very complicated psychology. And we have to really work with people where they're at and recognize that uh, when we ask for um, somebody to go from point A to point Z, chances are we're going to reinforce that person's. Um, desire to stay at point A. So I don't talk about, well, well, I agree that the quote unquote real problem is speciesism. I do feel this is a false dichotomy. I don't think we have to talk about one, you know, with the, to the exclusion of the other. My focus has been on carnism for um, very specific reasons. And I'd like to just differentiate carnism from speciesism to begin with. Um, speciesism is the ethos, the backdrop of carnism. Without speciesism, carnism wouldn't exist. We can think of carnism as a sub-ideology of speciesism, just as anti-Semitism, for instance, is a sub-ideology of racism. Uh, what this means is that these systems are ideological or, or are, are structurally quite similar, um, extremely similar, um, and yet they have some, some, some important differences. And, um, you know, the main difference is that carnism is focused on one subset of speciesist, uh, speciesist tenets. And, um, you know, I'm not going to go into all of the ways in which I think that they may be similar or different, but suffice it to say, I, or I will, I do want to talk about why I focus on carnism. And I think people need to focus their activism where they feel their activism is going to be able to do the most good and in a way they feel their activism is going to most closely fit with who they are and how they want to be active. So I don't encourage everybody in the movement to focus on carnism because everybody in the movement is going to have a different, you know, passion that, that's going to call them. Some people focus on single issues like, you know, circuses or, or vivisection, and that's just fine. We need to target, in my opinion, the problem of speciesism from multiple um, directions and in multiple ways. I chose to focus on carnism um, uh, partly because I think it's very important to be able to reach out to the public um, in a way that is uh, relatable to them. When we start talking to people and advocating for uh, you know, the well-being of non-human animals, when we start well, advocating animal rights, and we start talking about speciesism, we have a conversation about speciesism, speciesism is an ideology that is so entrenched and so abstract, and it requires such a fundamental shift of consciousness and a virtually impossible shift of um, lifestyle for the, the vast majority of people that the conversation ends up going out the window before it's even started. So we start talking about speciesism, and then we get distracted by, you know, debating the ethics of, of you know, swatting a mosquito 
know, off of your arm um, when the real issue or I would say a pressing issue is the fact that, you know, 65 billion non-human beings are slaughtered worldwide every year unnecessarily so that they can be consumed. Um, and I think that when we talk about carnism um, to people, um, one of the really important pieces here is that more animals are killed for their flesh and other body parts for human consumption than all other forms of animal exploitation combined. I mean, this is where the bulk of the problem lies. People also have an existing frame in their minds for carnism. And again, I'm coming at this from a strategic perspective. My question when I started to focus on carnism as an animal liberationist, I consider myself somebody who's focused on animal liberation and an anti-speciesist. Um, you know, the question I asked myself is strategically, what is going to make the most difference for the non-human animals? And um, and I think focusing on, on eating animals or not eating animals is, is where, you know, the, 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 the where the most uh, effect I can have would be. So people have an existing frame in their mind when we talk about carnism because there's a frame for the opposite of carnism. There's a cognitive frame or a cognitive schema that people have in which they can readily understand veganism and vegetarianism as ideologies. They cannot understand anti-speciesism as an ideology. I mean, I debate with people, or I should say discuss, actively discuss with people, my colleagues, you know, what is the opposite of speciesism? What is the opposing ideology? Is it biocentrism? None of us can actually fully agree on it. And we're people who are pretty steeped in, you know, these kinds of conversations. So you can imagine the average person trying to get involved in this conversation. Um, but when I say to somebody, you know, carnism is the opposite of veganism, oh, they say, oh, yeah, oh, of course, that makes sense. They get it immediately. There's a frame. It's also doable for people. If we're asking people to stop participating in speciesism, we're basically asking them to stop walking out the door because they're going to step on an ant. Okay, I'm exaggerating. But it's pretty pretty difficult. I mean, I'm wearing, you know, as we sit here, I'm wearing my... I'm wearing my vegan shoes um, that, you know, have glue sticking the heel to the sole. And I don't know where that glue came from. And I don't know who might be in that glue. So it becomes an excuse when we talk about speciesism. It becomes an impossible ideal for people to try to live up to. That's not to say that at some point we don't need to have that conversation. And in some contexts. I just don't know that it's the most effective way for us to advocate on behalf of non-human beings. And finally, I think that, you know, eating animals is um, probably the most, in some ways, the most intimate interaction that humans have with non-human beings. I mean, clearly, our companion animals that we have a bond with is very intimate. But if you think about it, I mean, people are putting others' bodies in their own body, in their mouths, in the, taking something into their body, often multiple times a day. That's a deeply intimate act. And I believe that eating animals defines our relationship with them. And I believe that as long as people continue this practice, it's going to be pretty difficult to have a, a really objective conversation about what it means to not participate in speciesism. You've mentioned vegetarianism a few times today. Could you please speak as to whether the focus of your work is on veganism or vegetarianism? I think there's been a little bit of confusion about that in the past. 
Yes. Um, the focus of my work is and always has been on veganism. And I, I think it's really important to, to use this word, to embrace this word, and have to take pride in, in the word veganism. Um, in my book, Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows, when I wrote that book, um, what year is it, 2013, just over two years ago when that came out, I chose to use the term vegetarian in the book. And interestingly, I don't use the term vegetarian or vegan. I used vegan in the book as well, but I focused that the word I used more often was vegetarianism. I, I only used it a small handful of times because I wanted the focus to be on carnism. And my website originally said vegetarian rather than vegan. And that was, again, it was for strategic purposes. Um, the, um, in my analysis, having talked with a number of uh, people who, whose opinions I trust in the movement, um, I wanted to make sure that I was using terminology that was going to increase the likelihood that the people I was trying to reach would listen to what I was trying to say. And um, vegan, you know, just in the past two years, awareness of veganism has really increased tremendously in the United States and, and in, in other places in the world as well where I've been. Um, and so I have felt that there's been enough of a shift of public consciousness where I could start using the word vegan um, consistently. And I don't use it 100% of the time, but, but almost our website uh, can use as vegan and not vegetarian. And we explain why on there. And um, I'm very careful to always in my presentations and my conversations to always include, um, you know, uh, animals excretions as well as their flesh when I'm talking about not consuming animals. Um, if I'm sitting next to somebody on a plane and they happen to be happen to be from a culture in the United States or elsewhere where you know it's it's clear to me that they've never heard the term vegan before and they don't know what it is I will start out by talking about vegetarianism and then lead into veganism um, this is a conversation I've had with my colleagues overseas in Europe um, with whom I've been working quite a bit uh, who are doing tremendous tremendous work for the vegan movement um, it's just really inspired me and blown me away and and they're very careful in Europe to um, avoid use, and I'm, I'm lumping everyone together in Europe, but in a number of European countries, I should say, they've been very careful, um, some really brilliant strategists, to use the term vegetarian and not vegan because their experience has shown them uh, consistently that um, talking about vegetarianism while advocating veganism uh, is um, it's more effective in terms of the kind of outreach and consciousness raising they want to do, and they've, they've done tremendous work. Thanks for explaining that, Melanie. There's actually been quite a bit of debate about the same thing here in Australia recently about using the word vegan or vegetarian or even just completely steering away from the word vegan. I find it difficult to accept that if we want something, we shouldn't ask for it. But I know that there's been a lot of research, as you spoke about, that at the very least it's certainly worth looking into. Yes, I think it's, it's, you know, I think you're absolutely right where if we want something, we need to ask for it. But if if we we can ask for it, in, in different ways. And we want the world to, you know, we want people to stop eating animals. And how we ask for that is going to determine to a large degree how, how much we're, we're heard. And I think we're having this conversation now because of the fact that there's been so much progress in the vegan movement. And that's something to be proud of and and to really celebrate and I think this is an important conversation for us to have and it's a conversation that we as vegans need in my opinion to to continue to be having my concern is that conversations like this and like you know some other issues that are um, uh, somewhat controversial in the movement are not discussed but are uh, debated in a way that um, in my opinion can impede our progress and our growth and deepening understanding so I, I agree with you Carolyn that it's uh, it's 
it's something that we, you know, need to and, and should continue to think about and, and talk about. Absolutely, and I, I agree with you that it's something we absolutely we should be discussing and we shouldn't be shying away from having these discussions. Melanie, when you were in Gainesville, this was probably getting close to two years ago, it, I believe. It was obvious to me what you were what you were suggesting that uh, people do. I mean, I, well, there was no question in my mind at the time that you were talking about veganism, whether you mentioned the word or not. Um, I'm sure it came up in the Q&A. I don't remember if part of your presentation it was what you spoke about. But it was obvious from the presentation that you gave what the conclusions a person would draw from it if they took on board the message that you were that you were putting out. So I, I think, and I think this is what you said earlier. I don't know if it was in response to this question, but I think earlier you said that part of the part of the problem is, is that we ought not to be focused necessarily on presenting people with a solution if they haven't yet understood the nature of the problem. And to my mind, presenting veganism as a solution. If people don't accept that there's a problem, I think veganism as a solution is is too big a change or it's too much to ask, especially if people don't buy that there's a problem yet. And so then I, th I think that people can reject the solution and then, and then because they've rejected the solution, they can ignore the problem. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's the way I think about it. No, it makes perfect sense. And actually, you just said that a lot better than I had. So I appreciate you um, putting it, uh, framing it that way. I completely agree. And I, um, yeah, and I think we really need to meet people where, where they're at. Um, we can have very strong feelings. We often, we do have very strong feelings about the issue, and as we should. Um, but our feelings about the issue and our ideological orientation, in, in my opinion, need to be, um, kept in perspective alongside of what our goal is. And if our goal is to make the world a better place for animals, the question that we should be asking ourselves consistently is, is what I'm doing now, is this in the best interest of the goal that we're working toward? Um, and, uh, you know, meeting people where they're at. And we have, there's plenty of information out there about how you know, people, people typically don't change dramatically. And one of the problems is, I think that we run into as activists is that many of us who become impassioned and active um, are the kinds of people who are, it appears to be the minority, um, the kinds of people who, who do transition quite quickly. The kinds of people who would say, wow, I saw this movie and I never ate animals again. Um, and then we assume that the rest of the world is like that. And we don't have um, much literature on this. You know, we don't have much empirical data um, demonstrating that people, at least not to my knowledge and not when it comes to eating animals, there is some, you know, there are qualitative studies, um, but there aren't any significant quantitative studies that I'm aware of in terms of how people transition. And that's something that I think needs to be looked into a little bit more fully. Um, but the vast majority of people, from what we understand, do transition slowly, and people do need to be able to make lifestyle changes and identity changes. I mean, this is a really big piece, I think, of um, what vegans—a really uh, important concept for vegan activists and advocates to understand. That lifestyle changes and identity changes often come about fairly slowly. And just because we might have been willing to make a dramatic change of lifestyle and identity, that doesn't mean that the average person is going to. And so if we don't meet them where they're at, 
we're going to significantly decrease the chances that our message is going to be heard. And that's not in the best interests of our movement. And it's not in the best interests of ourselves because we end up frustrated. Um, you know, there's a lot of um, uh, one of the things I was talking about, I was in Europe recently and I, I had the chance, the opportunity to talk with, you know, some of the most four actually of the most in, in different countries is, the most uh, strategic and insightful people I think I've ever met. And we had some incredible conversations. And we were talking about, you know, what so-called in Europe, they call it organic meat, you know, happy meat, humane meat. And, um, you know, the fact that there's this huge, um, you know, interest now in Europe and in the United States of, of eating, um, you know, so-called, I'm, I'm looking for a more appropriate term for it, but so-called humane animal products, carnistic products. And, you know, we were talking about people's process of transitioning and um, we discussed how the transition to veganism requires not just a shift of behavior, but also a change of identity. And so when somebody becomes a vegetarian, it is not, you know, vegans often poo-poo this and often say, well, it's not far enough. Because if we think of carnism and veganism on a continuum, then vegetarianism actually falls within that continuum. It's not at the far end where veganism is because Vegetarians, as you know, you well know, continue to consume carnistic products. And I should say that I've been, I, I, I try to avoid using the term animal products because I don't want to link those two words in people's minds anymore. Um, I, I've been using the, the phrase carnistic products because I want to reinforce this, you know, notion that uh, these products are products that are based on a bias, on an ideology. So people who consume carnistic products, you know, vegetarians, they're still obviously participating in carnism. And yet at the same time, to say I am a vegetarian is to say I have made a choice to basically define myself, at least in terms of, you know, my, my quote unquote diet, dietary orientation. I've made a choice to define myself based on what I do not eat rather than based on what I do eat. That's a shift of identity, and that's fairly significant. And so it's a much smaller step in some ways for somebody to shift their identity from vegetarian to vegan than it is for somebody to shift their identity from having no ideological orientation, at least in their mind, to suddenly what they perceive as this radical ideological orientation. So as people move along the continuum and they have these shifts of identity, we can, uh, we can safely assume, I believe, that they're increasing increasingly moving toward where we ultimately want them to be. So I think that these changes really need to be encouraged and celebrated and not dismissed as not enough. Melanie, I'd like to speak more about your essay, Speaking Truth to Power. I'd like to read the opening sentence of your new article and then ask you a question about it. You write, as vegans, our goal is not simply to get people to stop eating animals. We aim to bring about a revolutionary shift in social consciousness to transform a culture of violence and oppression to one of non-violence and liberation. My question is this, how are the stories we tell each other and ourselves vital to this transformation? Well, I think, you know, in this essay, um, the, the subtitle of it is Understanding the Dominant Animal Eating Narrative um, for Vegan Empowerment and Social Transformation. And the dominant eating animal narrative or the dominant narrative of a culture is the set of stories that the ideology, the dominant ideology of that culture tells. If you think about it and we look at history, we can see that history is not simply shaped by weapons or tyrants or rebellions. It's shaped by stories because beneath every oppression and every revolution are narratives or stories that guide them. We can't invade and take up arms against another without first believing that the story, that the other is our enemy. 
who must be conquered, just as we can't stand together in protest of violent invasions without believing that the story, the story that the war is unjust. And so the dominant narratives are the stories that are told by the dominant culture. They define our reality. And when we talk about a dominant culture that's oppressive, such as a carnistic culture, then the narratives, the stories of that culture are oppressive as well. These narratives are fictions. They're stories that are constructed to delude people into supporting the dominant way of life, even though the dominant way of life is not in alignment with what these people would normally support. And these fictions are, exist as well to silence the voices of people who seek to tell the truth. Um, these fictions exist, these narratives exist to prevent people from speaking truth to power. And this is what activism is about. This is what activists do. Activists speak truth to power. What we do as vegan activists is we highlight the fictions of the dominant animal eating culture. We shine a spotlight on them, and we provide alternative, truthful stories. So this is not the way things really are. This is the way things really are. When I say truthful stories, I'm not talking about the truth with a capital T, some great universal truth. What I'm talking about when I say truthful stories are stories that reflect the authentic truth of one's experience. As advocates, you know, we get into a little bit of gray area, or at least, I'm sorry, we're accused of getting into a little bit of gray area because we're not speaking about our own internal authentic truth. We're speaking about the truth of, of non-human beings who can't speak for themselves, but we're doing our very best to articulate the truth of their experience. Um, and so, you know, what we're trying to do is really rewrite the dominant narrative. And it's, it's so important. I, I talked about carnistic defenses earlier on in our conversation, and I talked about how these defenses are constructed to distort people's perceptions, to distance people psychologically and emotionally from the truth of their experience when they're eating animals so that they can feel comfortable enough to consume these animals. Um, and the stories, the narratives of the dominant carnistic culture exist to maintain those distorted perceptions. So, for example, one defense, um, carnistic defense, is objectification. It's seeing other animals as, uh, as objects, as things. So we learn to refer to, you know, the so-called Thanksgiving turkey as something rather than someone. You know, it's the story of this defense that animals or I'm sorry, farmed animals are, in fact, units of production or another story um, that carnistic defenses tell is, um, you know, that that all farmed animals are the same. They're abstractions. You know, a pig is a pig and all pigs are the same. They don't have individual unique personalities. Now, of course, these are fictions. We know well enough that they're not true. And, and, you know, a lot of our advocacy is organized around, you know, challenging these fictions. And so when I talk about carnistic defenses and their narratives, I'm actually referring to at least, I'm sorry, in my original writing, talking about carnistic defenses and their narratives, I'm referring to what I refer to as primary carnistic defenses. And these are the defenses that exist as I was describing, to distort people's perceptions of farmed animals and their flesh and other body parts, and to distort people's perceptions of their own relationship with eating animals. So, um, you know, for instance, uh, a distortion is, you know, eating animals is normal, natural, and necessary. These three myths are primary carnistic defenses. 
Um, but what I talk about in Speaking Truth to Power is um, a second type of carnistic defenses, which I refer to as secondary carnistic defenses. And these are organized to um, distort the truth about vegans and vegan ideology and practice and, and the vegan movement. These exist not to validate carnism, um, to say eating animals is the right thing to do. These secondary defenses exist to invalidate veganism, you know, to tell a story that not eating animals is the wrong thing to do. What particular message or plan of action would you like others to take away from reading your essay? Um, oh, that's such a great question. Um, well, I really wanted to focus this essay and did focus this essay on the vegan casualties of carnism. Um, I wanted vegans to recognize the ways in which we are impacted by the system. I think it's easy for us to believe um, that we are not influenced by the system because we have largely stepped outside of it. Because as vegans, you know, we've woken up to, to, to many of the fictions of the dominant culture and we no longer buy into to them. Um, but I think what a lot of vegans don't recognize still is that we are still under the influence of the, we are still looking at the world through the lens of carnism, but through the sphere of secondary defenses. In other words, that we um, buy into some or all of the anti-vegan messages um, that we hear about ourselves and our movement. And so I, my, I encourage vegans to, um, you know, if they can, if they have time to, to read this essay, to learn about what these defenses are. And I'm, I'm happy to point out a couple of them if we have time in this podcast. I don't know if we will. Um, because once we recognize these defenses for what they are, we are much less likely to be influenced, them, influenced by them. We can practice what I refer to as proactive veganism rather than reactive veganism. Reactive veganism is when we are um, believing in um, some of the stories of the dominant culture and we are reacting to its stories. So I'll just give you um, one example uh, to, to make this point. So one of the very common secondary defenses of carnism is projection. There are many different types of projections that are um, directed towards vegans. And projection tells the story, vegans are wrong. It, um, it invalidates us as people, essentially. You know, if we shoot the messenger, we don't have to take seriously the implications of his or her message. There are lots of different types of projections, so I've said. But one projection that I think is particularly problematic for us is... Um, uh, this projection of um, omnipotence, um, often carnistic culture projects onto us an impossible ideal. Um, in other words, it's as though we only have a right to our ideology if we can live up to this impossible image of perfection. So, for example, we're expected to be paragons of health. We, we can't, we're never allowed to get sick. I cannot tell you how many vegans in my lifetime, and I used to be one of them years ago, who hide the, you know, have told me that they hide the fact that they're sick. From people around them because they don't want it to be used as an excuse to dismiss their veganism um, or we're expected to be paragons of virtue you know with the moral consistency of the Buddha so we are hypocrites if we um, you know wear a used wool sweater but we're extremists if we don't we're also expected to be experts on everything it's like as we're not allowed to advocate veganism unless we have all the answers to the problem that is carnism and when we, of course, don't live up 
to these, um, you know, projections, to these impossible ideals, it becomes an excuse to discredit everything that we stand for. And so, you know, we can end up feeling so burdened by this. We can end up feeling like it's our responsibility. Um, we feel burdened by this because we, we can feel like we are being perceived as the ambassador for the vegan movement. You know, like the, the entire success or failure of the movement depends on us. We're, we're tokenized. We're the token vegan and we better represent our ideology well. So that's a lot of pressure on us. And it makes us often feel like we have to be turning everybody around as vegan. And when, of course, we don't succeed at that, because, you know, as you probably know, people don't like it's, it's hard to change people. Um, we can get frustrated with ourselves and feel like somehow we are personally responsible for causing animal suffering. So this is the way carnistic secondary carnistic defenses work. They they turn the problem of carnism around and they pin it on vegans and so I think it's very important for us to to recognize that, you know, we cannot do anything other than, you know, what Colleen Patrick Goudreau says, which is to, to plant seeds. You know, we can live our message. We can deliver our message. We can't turn people vegan. We can just plant seeds. We can speak our truth and live our truth. And that's the best that we can do, at least in terms of our own individual outreach. Sometimes vegans um, can internalize this projection and um, and believe that they are, in fact, omnipotent or all-powerful. And, and sometimes this gets manifested in vegans believing that their particular brand of veganism is the perfect ideal. And then these vegans will project onto other vegans that the other vegans who don't espouse the same brand of veganism, if you will, um, the other vegans are somehow imperfect and wrong. And this is very problematic. I mean, it's a it's a divide and conquer carnistic strategy, one could argue. It really pits us against each other. And it leads to this ideological rigidity and fundamentalism that that is something that plagues activists in a number of social movements. So there are a number of secondary defenses that are so important um, for vegans to be aware of. But, but one other one that I really want to point out is uh, secondary denial. Secondary denial is expressed through largely through invisibility as well. Um, and it makes invisible a number of things um, that I talk about in my article, but I'm just going to talk about one of them right now. It makes invisible or denies, secondary carnistic denial essentially denies the true power and scope of the vegan movement. Sometimes it denies that there even is a vegan movement in the first place. Other times it denies that the vegan movement is having any effect whatsoever. And, um, you know, I'm in this very privileged position right now where I have um, an amazing opportunity to travel around the world and really connect with people who are in positions of leadership in the movement in a number of different countries and talk with activists who are right there on the front lines doing the grassroots hard work. And um, and also speak to many, many people, thousands of people who come who are, are um, you know, proponents of carnism, who practice carnism, who come to my talks on my on my carnism presentation. And I hear very different stories and I see very different stories than the fictions spun by the dominant culture. Um, you know, what I hear and what I see again and again and again from people in the movement is that the movement is, in fact, growing and it is thriving. We have statistics to demonstrate this. We have, you know, we can see vegetarian and vegan restaurants just popping up all over the place. Um, you know, the term vegan is becoming increasingly known, as we talked about earlier. Um, the number of self-reported vegans and vegetarians is growing. The membership of Vivo, which is the, the one of the leading organizations in Germany, their membership has 
I believe it's quintupled in three years. It's significant. Um, I was just there visiting them in Berlin, and it was just I was uh, blown away by some of the work that they're doing. It's just staggering. I saw this in in Belgium, um, you know, in, in Croatia. It's just incredible. So, so it's very important for vegans to to recognize this because, um, you know, if we do believe in the the myth, the carnistic fiction that um, you know the movement is uh, ineffective and weak, then we feel that we as individuals are not making a difference, and that leads to despair and it leads to burnout and it makes it very difficult for us to have sustainable lives as activists and as people. Um, and it really undermines our advocacy. So, you know, it's important for vegans to recognize that we are a part of a social movement, um, a social movement that is growing, that is thriving, that is um, the trajectory of change, the trajectory of growth, the growth in this movement is pointing up. And I don't see this trajectory changing anytime in the near future, if ever. We're part of a social movement that is, in my opinion, and I've said this before and I can't say it enough, will be looked back upon one day as one of the, if not the, most important and transformational social movements in human history. So we have to hold on to that and maintain our connections with each other and with our movement and to recognize that we really are a part of something greater than our individual selves. And along with this um, you know, secondary denial, this, this, the invisibility of the vegan movement, you know, comes the invisibility of or the denial of, um, you know, the, of the experience of the people that we're reaching out to, people who are still eating animals. And again, I, you know, hear their stories and their stories that I hear, the stories I've heard from thousands of people around the world who have come to hear my carnism presentation are vastly different, dramatically different than the stories of the dominant culture. I hear over and over again that people care. People come, when I speak in Europe, um, often in the United States, the, the, the halls are packed, they're standing room only. These people are coming out because they're curious to hear about why they love dogs, eat pigs, and wear cows. They listen, they pay attention, they respond, and very often at the end they say thank you. And, you know, thank you for helping me break through my denial. And I list in my article, you know, some, some quotes from the feedback that I've gotten on some of the evaluation forms. And so I really believe that perhaps the greatest carnistic lie of all is the story that people don't care, that people eat animals because not because their hearts and minds have been manipulated by a system that's outside of their awareness and therefore outside of their control to a large degree, but because they simply don't care. And what I find again and again and again is that people really do care. They care about non-human animals and they care about the truth. And I think this is reason for us to be very, very hopeful. And so a large part of why I wrote this article, Speaking Truth to Power, was because I really wanted to support the people in the movement who are there on the front lines, who are waking up every day and living their truth and holding on to their veganism and, and living their convictions in the face of what is often overwhelming pressure to conform to the carnistic status quo, to fall back to back asleep, you know, to go back into the to the cocoon of numbing. And, you know, life in some ways is a is a lot easier when we are blissfully ignorant. But vegans get up every day and they, you know, face the world and live their convictions. And they are the only thing standing between 
animals and what would be, I believe, a, an even much worse fate for them. Living our truths as vegans, holding on to our truths, believing our truths, and living our truths as vegans is the greatest threat to the carnistic powers that be. And um, and I am just I'm just eternally grateful to be able to be inspired by by so many of the vegans that I meet and so many of the non-vegans who are really open to and you know committed to to living lives that um, do less harm. Melanie, could you please tell us a little bit about how CAN, the Carnism Awareness and Action Network, has been working to get these ideas out into the world and about CAN's plans for the future? Yeah, so CAN is my organization, and uh, we've got a team of, of nine at the moment, uh, very, very committed people who are really working to, to lay the groundwork to ensure that 2013 we really uh, increase the number of speaking engagements that I have um, and that we really promote our task forces. Our task forces we're starting up this year, which are going to be, um, which are actually now, they're, they're groups of professionals who come together um, overseen, with, uh, overseen by us and hosted and supported by us um, who want to raise awareness of and uh, challenge carnism in their respective fields. So that's very exciting. Um, we have a lot of exciting changes happening at CAN right now, um, but but CAN is the platform um, on on which we are able to go out there and um, you know raise awareness of of carnism. And it's very exciting to be a part of this team of people. And in 2012, for instance, um, I was able to speak in 12 countries and 33 cities. And um, and this was you know we're an all volunteer organization, and people at CAN work tirelessly. Um, we're looking at 2013. We're really hoping that we can, um, you know, reach four continents right now. We've got some talks going on with them. Um, I'll, I'll be coming to Australia, which I'm really excited about. I hope I can meet you, Carolyn. Um, it's going to be, um, you know, hosted by a very high profile Australian um, uh, corporate organization and a major events producer. So we're really excited about that. And we are in the process of launching Can Europe. Um, because there's just been so much activity in Europe that we actually need to have uh, a base over there as well. So um, it's it's just been tremendous. And I share all of this because I think it really um, is a very good example uh, demonstrating what I've been trying to say, which is that the world is the world is moving in the direction we want it to move in. And um, people, I think, are ready for this conversation in a way that they have never been ready before. Um, there would not be such a tremendous response to our work at CAN if there weren't something happening in the public consciousness that um, has created an opening for this to happen. Melanie, thank you so much for your time today. And thank you also for all the work that you continue to do on behalf of others. It's so much appreciated. We look forward to speaking with you again. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Thanks, both of you. Always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to AR Zone. Please visit us online at www.arzone.net and look for us on iTunes.